On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about an app. Now, it's not available to you yet. You can't get it on your phone, but law enforcement use it in the States. And what it does, you want to stick around and hear this, because when this thing gets released into the public and when you and your buddies can get this onto your phone... I think we're all going to have some concerns. We're also going to talk about a medical condition that I think most of us figured was eradicated in about 1490, but it's showing up in Hamilton. 52 possible cases in the past decade of scurvy. Really? And we're going to talk about Larry Walker making it into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Thankfully, thankfully, Larry Walker in, drug cheats not in. Stick around. Talk about all that. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called Clearview. Clearview. I, when I first heard this, I thought it was a contact lens or something like that. It sounds like it. It's a perfect name for a contact lens. Not a contact lens. It's an app for your phone, whatever. And it works like this. Someone somewhere out in public, wherever, snaps a photo of you. The app then takes that photo and compares the face that is snapped, so your face, with 3 billion faces that it has scoured by picking up off social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, YouTube. So this app, this company has gone around and collected all these faces that are available on social media for free and now has an algorithm that will compare your face, find out who you are, and then... Because your face is rarely put on social media without some kind of information, potentially tell the person who snapped the picture, your name, your address, other stuff about you. It's not exactly reassuring to know this is out there. Uh, Right now it's being used by hundreds of law enforcement agencies in the States. It's not available to the public yet, but apparently that is not far off. I want to bring in good friend of ours, Alan Mendelson. He is a lawyer who specializes in internet, online, and technology issues. Alan, how are you tonight? I'm great, Scott. How are you? Uh, Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, Let's go through some of this because there's a bunch of pieces to this. My first reaction, as you could probably imagine, and I think a lot of people when you hear this is, well, man, what an invasion of privacy. Yet we can, and, and we'll get to the more detailed parts about it, but we can right now, can we not walk down a street in Hamilton or Montreal or wherever and take a picture and a picture of anybody who's out in public? That's legal, is it not? It, it is legal to take a picture of someone in public. It is not necessarily legal to do something with that picture, to publish it in certain media or online or whatever without the subject's permission. Canadian law is quite clear on the fact that private individuals have a right to privacy, and the right to privacy includes a right to their own image. And the right to your own image includes the right for you to control who is going to publish a picture of you or not. How far does that go, Alan? If I take a picture of myself on a street, I'm down in Times Square in New York, and I take a picture and there are people in the picture with me and I put it up on my Facebook page, do they have a right to not have that picture up there? Most likely, yes, assuming those individuals are identifiable and identified. So if there is really no way for you to identify who the person was in that picture, um, besides yourself, like other people as well. And there's also sort of a context thing. The, the right to your image tends to be 
intertwined with the right to make money off of your image. So if the individual who took the picture of you is really not doing anything to make money off your image, then it's harder to prove that your rights to your image have been violated. Now, that is the baseline, I guess, that we all do this, or most of us do this. This app, and the reason this is so fascinating to me, this takes it to a whole new level because, again, this will not only match your face to an identity from social media, but could potentially tell the person who takes the picture something about you. That, that's a whole new level. Sure. Well, there are, there are many whole new levels to this particular situation. You know, I, I think one of the important distinctions we need to make with respect to the use of this Clearview app is that there's a difference between public use of an individual's photo and private use of an individual's photo. And by public versus private, I mean private companies and corporations versus public, i.e. the government and law enforcement. And I think it's that second category that most people are very worried about and is brought to light by this Clearview app, which the police departments are the ones currently who are the customers of the app. And that's sort of problematic for everyone. But let's imagine for a second, because everything I'm reading is saying, look, this app is not going to stay, or some version of it is not going to stay private forever or just in the hands of police. It'll eventually become available to people in all likelihood. Now, you are hiring someone. You're a lawyer. You hire someone for your law firm. There is a temptation. "Ah, I want to make sure this person's okay. So either with a camera in your office or with you sitting there, whatever, you take a picture of the person's face and see what pops up. Is that now fair game or potentially fair game? Well, you know, I think it might be, but if only because that is happening already. You know, an uh, an individual, a potential employer who is trying to hire someone does deep dives into the individual's online background. You don't necessarily need a photograph to do that. So, you know, I, I think that is less of a, well, I mean, that may be a concern to some people, um, for, again, for good reason, you know, uh, employment people who hire someone and then go find everything about them, including their private information on Facebook and so forth. Um, I don't think there's a particular difference between using facial recognition to do that and then just using, some, you know, someone who gets hired for a job has submitted their CV to the potential employer, which includes all the information required to go find out everything you can about that person. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily a, a good analogy. The issue is when the situation is more opaque and no one really knows who that person is, actually identifying someone with a photograph that's more problematic. You were saying, you know, it's not so much maybe the police side of this, or could be, that we're concerned about, but there is a system right now in China that is being used in certain areas where pretty much everything you do is being monitored, your face is being monitored, and they can track almost everything. That That's the extreme end of this thing, but ultimately that's, I think, the thing we're concerned about with this, right? That that doesn't become the reality? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, just before I answer that question, I would like to congratulate Larry Walker on Montreal guy. the Hall of Fame. Yep. Absolutely. I am a Montreal guy, and it's very exciting uh, to hear. Uh, but back to your question. Yes, you know, that, I think the quote-unquote surveillance state is the end possibility of any use of facial recognition. And I think that's what everyone worries about. And that 
this, you know, Clearview app is step one or two or three towards that potential surveillance state where state actors in these case, in this case, you know, the police are using facial recognition uh, to do their work for them. Um, you know, we are not at the point where governments are, you know, posting video tracking surveillance in the streets and using it for Lord knows what nefarious purposes. Um, but there's nothing necessarily to prevent that in Canadian law. Um, and as Canadian, I said, it does, exi- yeah. it does exist elsewhere. I mean, China is doing it. Yeah. It is possible to do it. Yes, absolutely. It's not science fiction somehow. The technology is absolutely there. Facial recognition is very smart, quote unquote. And, you know, despite certain stories about the Clearview have have commented that it's not particularly 100% accurate, but 99.9% accurate is still pretty good. And there's no question that facial recognition is here. Uh, the technology exists and is useful for any number of circumstances. What society decides to use it for is going to be the question going forward. And I don't want to make it sound like this is necessarily entirely all bad because there could be some positive uses for this with law enforcement, as you say. I don't want to make it sound like we're entirely only seeing the negative side of this, although... It's my belief that any good thing will almost immediately be used for nefarious purposes by someone if they can see an opportunity. Nonetheless, I don't want to be too much of a pessimist. No, um, no absolutely. You know, let's be clear about that. Excuse the pun, clear and clear view. But let's be clear about this: is that you know the two hundred or so that are reported law enforcement agencies that have used this system have used it to catch criminals. Right. And you know that's not a bad thing. I I think we would all agree that any tool that the police have at their disposal that makes it, you know, more likely for them to catch criminals and reduce crime is probably a good thing. Uh, And it's just a matter of how are we going to regulate that? There are two issues that I have with this Clearview thing, two big ones that came to mind. I bet you that if I talked to 10 people, they could come up with two more each that they may have concerns or things positive about it. But here's the first one. Uh, Many people have a doppelganger. So now the picture is taken and it suddenly shows up as not you, which, you know, most of the time, who cares? It says that it's Alan Mendelson that I took a picture of and it's not. It's Bob Schmarcola uh, of Tulsa who happened to be this, in, you know. But the fact is, if you were trying to solve a crime and Alan Mendelson is lying in bed and the house is robbed and suddenly now your picture pops up, that's concerning. Yes, absolutely. There's no question. And you know, Alan Mendelssohn may have a uh, twin brother, Alex Mendelssohn. <laughs> I never uh, thought of that. <laughs> you know, who would easily have the same facial recognition as I am. We could only assume that and only hope that the police are using it in a manner that is only one part of the evidence in a particular case against an individual, um, as they might use someone who gave a description of the person they saw committing a crime. Uh, the person was five foot nine and white and 100, uh, 155 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the police might use that 
in addition to other evidence they would right. find in order to a tool. move forward. A tool. A tool. Exactly. The, uh, so, the bad, but now let me jump in because we we're very short on time, sadly. I wish we could do this longer. But the other concern is if this is as described, I take a picture of Alan Mendelson who's out on a street somewhere and I see your name pop up and your address pops up because somewhere on social media you've posted that, which would be a bad idea, but nonetheless you've done it by accident. I now know you're not home. I can go to your home and rob you. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. Clearview, uh, you know, the the use of Clearview in the future by private individuals when Clearview releases this system to the public, assuming they do, um, it's fraught with any number of serious, serious issues um, that we're going to have to deal with. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. Scott, my pleasure as always. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Way, 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 way back in pirate times or when sailors were on galleons around looking for the new world and all the rest. Scurvy, scurvy, like the disease, the sailor's disease from, as I say, like the 1400s. Uh, Most of us don't even know have never, let's put it this way, most of us have never contemplated that scurvy might be a thing we could ever see in our life. However, it is true. McMaster researchers say 13 people in this city have had scurvy over the past decade and another 39 might have. 52 people may have contracted scurvy in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in the 21st century. How is that possible? Well, let me bring in Dr. Kayla Dadger. She is a doctor in Ottawa, but she had been a medical student at McMaster when she did the research on this report that has just been published. She joins us now. Dr. Dadger, thanks for doing this. Thanks. Hi, Scott. When you told people that you, outside of your lab or whatever, when you were at home or at a cocktail party or doing whatever you were doing, when you told people that you were studying scurvy, would I be fair in saying they probably thought you were doing a historical, scientific piece of work? I think that um, they're often surprised uh, because it's sort of, as you mentioned, thought to be a disease of the past. And it's kind of hard to believe that people in modern um, Hamilton could have that disease. But um, I think it's quite interesting that that's um, what people think in general. I'm not alone then in thinking, in assuming that this is a disease that was eradicated way, way, way back. That's just always been my assumption. I'm not standing alone on this one. No, I don't think that you're alone. Even amongst healthcare providers, I think that um, it's not something that we consider very often, but is something that happens that we should probably do, um, you know, a better job of bringing to the forefront and, and thinking about when we're examining patients. This would probably be a good time to, uh, I think most people know that it has something to do with vitamin C and that's probably, and maybe it's something to do with your teeth and your gums, if we remember right from our, what we learned in school. What is scurvy? So essentially scurvy is a deficiency in vitamin C um, and because it's very important for um, things such as collagen production, um, it is important for maintaining your teeth and um, blood vessels so you can get bleeding, weakness, um, and in some cases even death from scurvy. So it it can be quite serious, but uh, we don't often see cases that severe. Are those the only symptoms, like if you have bad teeth or rotting gums or something, is that how you would know you have scurvy or there are other ways you might, other things you might see? 
Yeah, so um, so bleeding gums, easy bruising, poor wound healing. Um, you can get um, hemorrhage inside of your joints or um, what we call corkscrew hairs, which are um, sort of your hair is spiraling instead of growing out normally. But some of those things, uh, I, I'm not a doctor, unlike you, mm-hmm. but some of those things are symptoms of numerous other diseases or conditions, correct? Yeah, it's quite nonspecific, the sort of uh, presentation that many patients have. And I think that's uh, sort of the problem with pinpointing scurvy is that you have to ask the patient about their diet and, and kind of dig a little bit further to consider that that might be a cause of those symptoms. And now I made the horrible mistake, which uh, I'm sure, again, as a doctor, you probably advise against. I went on WebMD, which instantly <laughs> makes everything leads you to cancer. Every diagnosis is cancer. But before I got to the cancer diagnosis that I probably had, uh, many of the symptoms that came across with scurvy uh, actually sounded like some of the things you said, but also like things you would have with the flu, like uh, just sore joints or nausea, or whatever. And a lot of these things I'm thinking, who would ever think to get a doctor to look at them for something like scurvy? You would just think I have a flu. Yeah, I think, you know, in general, for most of the population and many of the people listening, um, it would be very unlikely that they would ever develop scurvy, you really have to have quite a restricted diet over a number of months for this to occur. So almost no uh, fruits or vegetables um, in general over months. Uh, It would be very unlikely for general listener to be developing scurvy. So I don't think you should be too worried. Before we get to the diet part though, is diet the only cause of this? Is this, is is diet the only path to getting this? Um, So not necessarily. We did have some patients in the study that developed scurvy after gastric bypass surgery. Um, So that's where you're bypassing part of the digestive tract and have more difficulty absorbing nutrients such as vitamin C. Um, But for most people, it is diet related. The part about the diet, though, that I find so odd is that if this is largely a deficiency of vitamin C, uh, I understand that not everybody is going to be having all the citrus fruits or the vegetables or whatever where you might find vitamin C commonly, but so many things that you buy, even if you're using processed food or fast food, say with vitamin C added, like it seems to me it would be hard to go through life eating anything and not bump into some vitamin C along the way, even if it was added to your food. Yeah, that is true. Um, Most of the people that uh, had restricted diets in the study were quite isolated, very vulnerable people um, that had diets that mainly just consisted of, you know, grains, um, maybe some meat, um, but often people who develop scurvy also have have other risk factors such as poverty or isolation or um, are dependent on um, other people to bring them food because they're not able to leave their homes, that sort of thing. I was going to say, like the, again, the poverty thing I kind of understand. And then, as I say, there's so much food that has po- that has vitamin C added to it. But if you are stuck in your house and someone, just, I mean, again, is this are these people who have had medical conditions largely previously that led to this? Um, there were individuals who suffered from mental illness that were isolated. Mm. There were individuals who. Uh, were elderly and had a, a difficult time, you know, even um, leaving their homes or were in a supported living environment where they were uh, requiring staff to bring them meals, that sort of um, thing as well. So I think there there's a number of um, nuances to each person's story and it'd be hard to have uh, a general statement, but 
there are definitely um, cases that we maybe haven't heard of or maybe haven't been faced with um, that do occur. Did you, by the way, when you did this study, did you set out looking for scurvy or is this something you found as you were doing it and were surprised by? Yeah, so um, essentially, initially my research supervisor, Dr. Neary, had diagnosed a case of scurvy in his clinic um, and I heard about this and was quite interested. Um, so <laughs> yeah. we, we, we wanted to look at what other cases might have occurred and what sort of circumstances led to those. So when he said to you, oh, I just diagnosed a case of scurvy, you, did you say, wait a second, did you just say scurvy? Did you do the double take thing that, that a lot of people would have done? I thought it was very interesting um, <laughs> because like many people, it wasn't something that really came to the, the forefront as occurring in a major uh, city in North America. No, I, I'm guessing that probably, you know, if you have to type in notes or whatever, there's people who are looking at those notes saying, wait a sec, is this a typo? Like it, it's so, it's such an odd thing to come up. What is the, um, is the treatment when someone has it, cause it's a vitamin C deficiency, is the treatment mm-hmm. nothing more than just giving them more vitamin C? Yeah. And you, there's actually a very rapid, um, dramatic response to providing patients with vitamin C. Um, and over, only a couple of days, most people felt much better and were um, relieved of many of their symptoms. So it, it is quite simple to treat and very preventable. On the other side, how if you leave it alone, where does it go? How bad does it get if you don't get treatment? Uh, so the initial experimental studies of scurvy, the the researchers who tested on themselves uh, died. Like there was there was a documented death. Um, of a researcher, I believe, in a, a Lancet article from, uh, I think the, it was research from the 1700s that was done. So death is possible. Um, we definitely don't see that likely um, often, but, uh, you know, losing teeth, gum bleeding, generally feeling unwell, these are all pretty serious consequences and not something I think any of us would want to endure. And I was shocked when you just said that Dr. Larry, he was the one who diagnosed, because I was wondering if this was after the fact, because you found other things and then said, oh, wait, that might have been scurvy. But you're saying people have been told right in the doctor's office, you have scurvy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If um, a patient has, you know, all the signs and symptoms um, or many that we've mentioned and they become rapidly better with vitamin C or they have a very low vitamin C level, then uh, a diagnosis um, can be presented to them. And what is the response when you tell someone in 2000 and whatever that they have scurvy? Um, I personally have never told okay. someone that they have scurvy, but um, I imagine they were um, probably surprised. I, well, I, I got to think that it's a kind of a cool thing for you now, though, that across Canada, I, I would say that you are probably now the leading authority on modern era scurvy. I mean, of all the doctors <laughs> in Canada, you're the one who's the scurvy expert. That, that's something to hang your hat on. It is a very niche market. <laughs> <laughs> a very niche market, I would say so. Dr. Kayla Dadger, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. That is uh, that is a discussion, Will, that I never thought we'd be having on the air because, again, I remember learning about scurvy somewhere back in grade eight or something. And I think I learned about it because it, maybe it was grade seven, maybe grade six. I don't know. We had to read back around then, the worst novel in my mind in the history of novels for school, Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. 
and it was the story of a sea. sailor on the seas looking for the new world or whatever. It was a horrible. I hated it. And I think scurvy was part of that story. It probably, yeah, that sounds like it'd be about right. Sorry, I'm just laughing. This was part of the Horatio Hornblower series. I think so, yes. <laughs> of course I know which book you're talking about. I think about. it was, but it was, I don't even remember. Like, yeah. I, 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 but you got something out of it. You learned about scurvy. scurvy. Yeah. But who would have possibly thought that, and as I say, the reason that I'm so shocked about this is not that a disease just goes away, especially when it's a deficiency of something that, of course, could be around but so much of the food that we buy, even if you eat nothing but junk, has stuff inserted into it, has stuff yeah. added to it, including by how many times, even if you buy orange pop, it'll say with vitamin C added. Like it's almost impossible, it would seem, to avoid all vitamin C if you're eating anything. Yeah. No, that is... Uh I mean, I would be interested to hear more about uh, uh, about what they found and what led to it, what dietary or, or living restrictions did lead to... to well, she just said that they yeah. were either locked in or had very limited or, you know, mental illness. I mean, see, that, that I could see. If you yeah. had... And I don't, I don't know who any of these patients are, so mm-hmm. I don't want to be casting a wide blanket, but I could see with mental illness, if you had someone who was having a mental illness crisis and was only eating whatever, they became obsessed or crackers or something, okay, yeah, yeah. where you have no other source of food, but man, in, in I saw that story the other day, it was on the spec.com yesterday and it said scurvy and I did the, the double <laughs> blink, blink, yeah, exactly. Sc- scurvy? It's not April 1st, right? Nope. Scurvy. So if your husband, wife, children, uncle, aunt, grandparents, if their teeth are falling out and their gums are bleeding, it may not just be because they're not flossing. Make sure, give them an orange and see what happens. Give them an orange soda. Just an orange. See what happens. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our special guest this evening, Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of multiple other different things in the valley town of Dundas. Thanks for being in here. Usually here on Monday, decided yeah. to switch it up for this week. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. Uh, many things to get to. Let's start, though, with the news that you probably heard on your way in today, that Larry Walker, the Canadian guy, second Canadian ever elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. We don't need to go into all the details of that. We've talked about it a lot. There's been a ton of conversation about Larry Walker today, and rightly so. Great player. Would have been... In my mind, an outrage, not man, outrage, a sham, a bad choice by the voters if he hadn't got in. But to me, the other question about this, the other issue was going into this, there was so much talk about, could, could, is it possible that Larry Walker might not get into the Hall of Fame, but Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens could? And thankfully, uh, to me, thankfully, Barry Bonds got only 60.7%. Roger Clemens got only 61%. Uh, you need 75 to get in. Are you one of the people who is of the opinion that people who were busted or were linked closely to performance-enhancing substances should be kept out of the Hall of Fame? Or are you of the opinion that, eh, whatever, let him in? I don't know how many people cheated, and I don't know how many people that are in the Hall of Fame right now cheated and didn't get caught because they didn't test. Um, I don't think it's much of a limb to go out on to think that 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 number is zero. Um, I've always 
looked at the Ben Johnson situation, the Larry Walker, the Barry Bond situation that, you know, I think we probably touched on it before that if a guy knows that his life expectancy is going to be cut back by 20 years if he injects himself with all this, you know what? If that's what you personally want to do to yourself, fill your boots, and if you can hit 140 home runs a year, God bless you. I'd like to see a guy hit 140 home runs a year. So, you know, I, I don't care what guys do to their bodies. And, pers- and frankly, you know, what your choice is, what you do to inject yourself with bull tranquilizers or whatever yeah. you want to do. The problem I have with it, Don, is that that makes it, that unevens the playing field for those guys who do want to play clean. And so Don Robertson comes through the system and he's a really good player, but doesn't want to ruin his life, doesn't want to cause himself health problems, doesn't want to be immoral or unethical and wants to play the game right. And you may not get your shot because the guys who are passing you, I mean, there are players that we know of who were very, not these two, but very mediocre players who suddenly get involved in this stuff and now they become stars and you're stuck in the minors still. That That's the problem to me. That's a, I mean, that's a fair comment. Um, and I guess the world has changed, but I'm thinking that there's a lot of guys that did a lot of things um, in the past that we'll never know about. I guess the fact that we know about it and it's 2020, then it makes it an issue. Again, it's it's an interesting point. Um, but there are guys that get drafted whose dad is a, a, a friend of the scout from the team and that kid gets a chance and the kid that doesn't have, his dad isn't friend of a scout, he doesn't get a chance. The world isn't fair. No, the world is not fair. But I go back to my other example of this and let's say, okay, so you were now in the National League West as a pitcher and you had to face Barry Bonds 18 times, your team, and you were a relief pitcher, and you may have come in a bunch of times, and Barry Bonds, when he was reputed to be taking all this stuff, tees off on you a few times, and you get sent down. Does Should we just then say, well, too bad, so sad, or do we say, no, Barry Bonds probably, and Roger Clemens on the other side, these guys probably negatively affected the careers of other people. Like, they could have ruined careers. Exactly. They could have cost people tens of millions of dollars in earnings, potentially. But but what if that kid was only there because he got drafted and got the proper training because his dad was a buddy of the scout? It's. I mean, mine's a bit more of a stretch. It, it's a, it, yours is hard. Yours is a lot harder in baseball, perhaps, than in some other sports. But even then, I mean, you may get drafted if you know somebody or it's a favor. It's really hard to work your way up through the system if you can't play. There's nobody who is no, but, but Bucky if, Jones if who you, was just a, as a favor is now playing left field for the Jays. If you and I are equal talent and your dad knows the scout and you get the opportunity that I didn't and with the nutrition, the coaching. Well, look at the Jays players. The skills management now, you actually got that opportunity falsely. Look at the Blue Jays players. They didn't get it falsely. But Biggio and Guerrero and um, who's the other one? Th- their dads were major league players, so they were around the park and they got to hang out with major leaguers and they got the, the – it can't be a coincidence that all these guys have become major leaguers. No, but there's uh, – if you're a premier athlete and you're a major leaguer, there's a pretty good chance your offspring aren't going to be terrible athletes. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. You don't see too many guys that are playing in major league sports – where their mom and dad 
didn't participate at all in sports and were academics and there's a few, but you're right. It's more often than not, you've got some sort yeah. of genetic You've help. got some genes that are helping you along but the this way. But this goes to a way even bigger question because, uh, you know, would if, if Shaquille O'Neal didn't grow to be whatever he was, seven foot one and 300 pounds, if Shaquille O'Neal had stopped growing at five foot seven, would we have ever heard of Shaquille O'Neal? No. Well, no, no. Not unless he became a rap singer. Well, no, but I mean, or, or something else. Maybe he became a yeah. golfer or something. But no, it, like there is absolutely, people have advantages. You can't eliminate the genetic. You're talk, talking about artificial But I'm talking, those are natural advantages. Yeah. Those are things that you can't, no person, no league can say, you know what, Don? Well, some league, there was a basketball league that tried this. That says you have to be six foot four or under. That was the one that was in Hamilton with the Skyhawks that Ron Foxcroft owned for a while. But- most leagues would not say, oh, you're over six foot five. That's too much of an advantage. You can't play. If you are Yao Ming and you're seven foot six, all the better. Come on in. But that's a natural thing. You can't take someone and put them on the stretching device to try and turn them into a seven foot six player. You can't also shoot up with all kinds of steroids to win records and do this kind of thing. Anyway, I, I'm I'm thrilled. I was really thinking today that we were going to be on here talking angrily in my mind about the fact that you had two guys closely linked to performance-enhancing substances getting in and a guy who never was even mentioned with a whiff of that sitting on the outside, which would have sent to me every wrong message possible. Because if that had happened... Larry Walker is a fool for not having taken the stuff back when he was playing. Did, have Bonds and uh, Clemens' percentages gone up? Yes. So cl- uh, so they're getting closer, right? Bo- well, Bonds went from 53.8 to 56.4 to 59.1 to 60.7. They've only got three years left, though, and they're going up at a pace that won't get them there. And Clemens went from 54.1 to 57.3 to 59.5 to 61. They're both still a long way off. What they need is about 25 or 30 of these older baseball writers to die in the next three years and to be backfilled with young guys who are new in. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's exactly what they need because yeah, the older guys are not going to give them the... They're not buying into they're it. They're clearly not giving them that opportunity. And, no. and I agree with them. I agree. And it's going to be really interesting now when you get some of these guys from the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox on these current teams, not PEDs, but cheating of a different kind... What does Jose Altuve, who is on a track for a Hall of Fame career, or uh, Bregman, how are they seen when they come up, when they retire, and they come up now for Hall of Fame consideration? Well, and and so often, and it's, it's a whole different conversation, but how often when you see a guy go in the Hall of Fame, I look at Clark Gillies in the NHL or the Hockey Hall of Fame, he was lucky enough to play in a whole bunch of Stanley Cup championship teams. So did, how much does that tilt the odds? And I don't know if that's the point you're getting at. But when these guys, you know, when their careers are over with and they look back and they say, but he won a World Series, and that matters in the voting. It can. And he may not have won a World Series had people not cheated and given him information that the other teams didn't 100%. have. 100%. So does is that part of the conversation and say – the Houston Asterisks really didn't win a World Series. I love that you're calling them that, the Houston Asterisks. That's, I'm hoping that catches on, yes. Right, and the, we, he wouldn't be in consideration. 
because him and Scott Radley have the same stats, and we're going to give it to Radley because he won a World Series and not the other guy. And so if it comes up like that, traditionally the guy that won a World Series it counts for something. gets a little bit more juice. Yep. No, for sure. And no, I, I no look pun at, intended. No, no. Well, I mean, and this story I don't think is done. I mean, if it comes out that right now it's a story about the Astros as an organization, if it comes out that individual players in particular had certain advantages. To me, to me, Don, that's, I don't know if it's worse. It's every bit as bad as taking steroids or some other PEDs. If you in baseball are told ahead of time what pitch is coming, that to me is as bad as anything else you can do in the game. Well, I, I said to you last week when we talked about it, I said the players had to be in on it because they were getting the free advice. But if you, and, and my only downside to that is, so the, the, there's two stories here. The, the story is, the official story is that somebody in the Astros dugout was getting the signal from a camera and was banging on a garbage pail with a baseball bat. So if you're up to bat, you would hear one thump or two if it's off speed or fastball. But it's really hard to say that the player was in on it because the team could have been doing this and the guy could not have asked for that or could have been ignoring it and just paying attention to the pitch. That's a stretch. Well, not necessarily. I mean, look, I, I, I would not doubt that there were some players on that team who said, don't bother me with that stuff. I'm concentrating on the pitcher. I can't be trying to listen for a thing. And they're not participating in this. But this rumored story that some guys had buzzers on them, if you attach a buzzer to your body to know what pitch is coming, you cannot make the case that I was not part of this. You could say that I wasn't part of it if it was just a thumping on a garbage pail. You can't if there's something on your body. The only out for saying that they didn't know was they couldn't hear it because... But were there any deaf players on the Astros? They're in the clear. No. They're going to say, look, I didn't pay any attention to it. I, I'm clean. But there had to be a setup for the guys to know what signals to listen for. If it's beating on a garbage uh, drum twice for a sinker and one for a fastball, which is pretty traditional... If you're trying to win a World Series and somebody's giving you that information, I think you're taking it. Which, Probably. Which means it's collusion, which means almost all of them are in on it, including the trainers and everybody else knew. You don't keep, you can't keep it a secret. It's no advantage. It would be, it, it's hard to imagine as you, you're right. It's hard to imagine that a player in that moment doesn't want that information and wouldn't use it. It, it is hard to imagine that, but I can't, this is the problem with penalizing the players. How could you prove that he was using that advantage? How can you, and even if he did hear the thing then that was put in his head, he may have not wanted it and they did it anyway. And now you're going, well, it's a fastball. I know it's a, I mean, how do you ignore that and go, oh, I'm going to swing for a changeup when I know it's a fastball coming, you'd yeah. be an idiot then. So nobody's that magnanimous. Now, but let's talk about Pete Rose. Like, Pete Rose bet on baseball. Pete Rose has now admitted he bet on, bet on baseball. Is Sure, he's a bad boy, he bet on baseball. But there's no evidence he ever bet, it, bet against the Reds to lose. Except, that he had full control over. Yes, yes. Although the argument, and I agree with it, the argument about Pete Rose is, okay, he never bet against his team. So he didn't throw any games like the Black right. Sox did. But you're the manager... And so you decide, I'm not betting on my team today, so I'm going to give all my best pitchers a day off so that they can rest up. 
And so any day that he did not bet on the team, you can make the case that he did not have the incentive to play his best lineup or do everything he could, whereas the days that he was betting on his team, he was going to use whatever were his best players. Well, fair. So there is some, there is a connection. But there is no evidence that he didn't go out and try and win every day. It's not evidence. It is merely the fact that baseball in every clubhouse has As a big a thing posted up saying, don't bet on this game. It's the cardinal, yeah. it's the cardinal rule of any sport that as soon as you have people involved in the game, potentially tinkering around with who's going to win or going to lose, your credibility is done, which, which is why this Houston thing is so dangerous for baseball. Because if fans now start to believe that it's not on the up and up, you lose fans and that's real money. That's real money. Now, before we go to break, I want to ask you this one question. Though, and I heard this, not an original idea. I heard this driving in today, but I thought it was a fascinating point. And I can't remember who said this. So Larry Walker, the, all the talk leading into this election was, is he going to lose out because he played many of his games at Coors Field, which has... The air is light. The ball goes out of the park better. Right. So it's an, it, for a while there, it was the biggest offensive park in the game, therefore he had an advantage, therefore his stats aren't as impressive because he was playing in an unfair situation. Not PEDs, but an advantage. That's like saying he's a Canadian. Well, the person, I don't know who said it, but it was a fascinating point and I I think it was really interesting, said, have we ever heard of Hall of Fame voters pointing to a pitcher who played in a pitcher's park? And saying he doesn't get in because the park was a big park and therefore that helped his numbers. I've never heard that. No. And so when Justin That's Verlander, when Justin Verlander comes up for Hall of Fame consideration in a few years, he played most of his career in Comerica Park in Detroit, which is a huge park. Should Justin Verlander's numbers be discounted and his success whittled down and people say he really isn't clearly a Hall of Famer? Because I think he is. He really isn't a Hall of Famer because he played in a big pitcher's park. And had he played in Boston or, or Colorado, he would have been nowhere near. Well, you can, I don't think you can use that argument now because Larry Walker's in. Bare, now, to be fair, he got in, thankfully, barely. He got 76.2 or something percent. Like he got in. Doesn't matter. He it, got in. He got a higher percentage than Fergie Jens, Jenkins did. Did he? I didn't remember. I don't remember what no, what uh, percentage Freddie I'd, got. I don't think he had to be seventy five percent back then. But anyway, you can I've, check. I could be wrong. I doubt it. I just find it really interesting, and no one complains about Boston Red Sox players playing in Fenway Park, which is a tiny park, yeah. or in, back when Tiger Stadium was tiny, and you had guys that were hitting there, Trammell, and all these other guys. Well, that's but, like saying Dave Anderchuk maybe shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame because he played so many years in the odd. And it's a smaller rink and it helped him score more goals because skating was not his forte. Or that Dave Vanderchuk shouldn't be in because many of his goals were power play goals and they don't count as much. Well, no, they do. They put them on the clock, right? Put them on the scoreboard. It's a, uh, yeah, that's right. So anyway, I, it, interesting stuff. I'm just, I'm very thankful today that we don't have to sit here and gripe and complain and be moaning about the fact that the voters screwed it up. Because boy, if Clemens and Bonds had got in and, and Walker hadn't, that, as I say, that to me would have been the ultimate bad message about the reward and the not reward of cheating. You talk about Pete Rose again, I know, I know we have to go. Um, talking about old sports writers and, and guys that got votes dying, that would help Pete Rose. It probably would. 
They're probably except he would only go in on the veterans committee now, and I don't know that because that's a whole different way of doing yeah. it. And I don't know that they're going to not take the ear of baseball. Who says? See, Pete Rose is not not in the Hall of Fame. He's not even on the ballot. He can't get on the ballot because he's banned from baseball. Yeah. So it's a different thing as opposed to just the voters yeah. or the, the committee saying no. He's yeah, not. He might permitted. get voted in, but he couldn't. It, like, he, he, but if he could get on the ballot, he might. He might get he in. He might. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911.